0: I always wanted to be a nurse from childhood. That was partly due to the fact that I had a lot of illness in my uh, childhood. The parts about nursing that I didn't like particularly it were the ones away from the patient's bedside. The concept of hospice came across my brain. It seemed as if it was the medium that fit my own personality.
1: In Latin, the word hospice means to host a guest or stranger. Florence Wald centered her life on hosting a dignified end-of-life process that honored the patient's personhood. Her ideas around death and dying led to the formation of the first modern hospice in the United States in 1974. Because of her, there are thousands of hospice programs around the country serving millions of patients and families. Florence's pioneering efforts have forever changed the heart of the American society to accept and engage in an end-of-life process that she described as appropriate, understanding, and natural. And in 1998, she took her rightful place in the National Women's Hall of Fame with legends such as Eleanor Roosevelt, Helen Keller, Harriet Tubman, and Florence's idol, Lillian Wald. You are now listening to Personhood, the story of Florence Wald and the Hospice Movement, Episode 1, and I'm your host, Sol Abeema. On April 6, 1917, just 13 days before Florence World was born, the United States decided to enter World War I. President Woodrow Wilson gave a speech to Congress on April 2, 1917, asking for them to declare war on Germany. In his speech, he said that the U.S. would go to war to fight for the ultimate peace of the world. And on April 6, 1917, The U.S. military marched to war. When World War I initially broke out across Europe in 1914, it was mainly between the central powers led by Germany, Austria, and Hungary against the allied countries led by Britain, France, and Russia. At the start of the war, President Wilson declared that the United States will remain neutral. Here's a report by Stephen Ives.
2: Woodrow Wilson was, in many ways, the great tragic figure of the Great War. More than any single person, it was in his power to determine whether we fought or not. The decision was an absolute torment for him. He had this deep aversion to war, but he truly understood what America was trying to do to come of age, that it is our responsibility to, in Wilson's phrase, make the world safe for democracy. No one had articulated the kind of vision of America as a global citizen the way Wilson did. And he felt profoundly in the end that the only way we could have a place at the table and dictate what the future of the globe would be, would be to prove ourselves on the battlefield.
1: Just as America went into the battlefield against Germany on April 19, 1917, Florence Wald was born into a German family to Mr. and Mrs. Shorsky in a divided world. Although the Shorsky family were second-generation Americans, their values and culture were heavily influenced by their German heritage. Before the war started, the Shorskis spoke German at home so the children would be bilingual. However, during the war, Fear of isolation turned them to English-speaking. Deeply rooted in Bronx, New York, the Shoskis exposed their children from an early age to the ideas of kindness, love, care, and equality for all. Here is hospice historian Bob Newton.
0: In interviews and presentations, Florence often said that her parents were members of the Socialist Party, And as such, she was exposed to a variety of justice-based causes from a young age. Her parents often volunteered to teach English to the immigrants on New York's Lower East Side and raised Florence and her brother Carl to show concern for others and advocate for social justice.
1: This upbringing, deeply rooted in the ideas of universal equality and compassion, would ingrain Florence with deep-seated beliefs about the world and how people should fundamentally be treated. These concepts will later directly influence our practices around hospice care. Here's hospice historian, Danielle Shoemaker.
3: Despite her generally positive upbringing, life was not always perfect in Florence's early childhood. She experienced a number of health issues as a young child that required frequent hospitalizations. In 1926, when Florence was just seven years old, her family traveled to Florida to facilitate Florence's recovery from an episode of a life-threatening pneumonia. On the return trip home, they stopped in Washington DC and it was there that Florence was diagnosed with scarlet fever.
4: Hi, I'm Brian Mackinder. Scarlet fever was a leading cause of death in children in the early 20th century. When a child was found to have scarlet fever, they went through weeks of isolation in the hospital.
1: For seven-year-old Florence, this meant weeks of isolation in Garfield Hospital. Florence later described that experience as being trapped in a vintage Civil War hospital.
0: This was the first time Florence had been separated from her family and it was a challenge for everyone. Her private nurse, Eunice Biller, from Richmond, Virginia, cared for Florence like she was her own child. Eunice Biller understood the impact of Scarlet Fever on Florence and did everything to keep her spirits up. In addition to her care, she provided spiritual support, music therapy, art, and craft, and toys for Florence to play with.
1: Florence would later reflect that it was the care of her nurse, Eunice Biller, that made her feel like a person, not a patient with a contagious disease.
3: When Florence's mother would visit, she was unable to enter due to isolation policy at the hospital. Having compassion, Florence's nurse, Eunice Biller, would carry her to the window where Florence was able to wave to her mother three floors down. This left quite an impression upon Florence. And from this time forward, she was committed to becoming a nurse. Her favorite pastime was playing nurse to her dolls at home.
1: It was that kind of compassionate care which valued the sense of personhood that let later evolve into the hospice philosophy of care. When Florence was 10 years old, the family traveled to Germany to reconnect with their roots and visit with the extended family. She loved it there. In 1932, Florence and her mother returned to visit family in Berlin. This time they found an entirely different Germany. The Nazis were promoting anti-Semitic activities and organizing pro-Hitler rallies. The country seemed to be filled with unexpected outbursts of hate and violence towards the Jewish citizens. This validated what the Shorzkis were reading in US papers and led them to help Jewish families immigrate to America.
2: Dort beim Breg von ein alter Boy, seine Blätter. Kasmen Herze koil, Schöpchen und erzähl, wie es statt a hell, wenn es fahen koil, überwaut und fäll. Schöpchen und erzähl,
5: wie es statt a hell, wenn es fahen koil, überwaut.
1: In 1934, when Florence was 17 years old, she decided to go to college.
0: From a young age, Florence was always a determined girl. So when she broke the news about her desire to go to college to her father, he was not happy. Her father, like many men of this generation, did not believe that women should go to college, and he discouraged her from doing so. Remember, this was also the the period of the Great Depression in America, but her family had the means and could afford her college education.
1: Florence was not the person to easily take no for an answer. After some convincing, Florence's dad allowed her to attend Barnard College and live at home.
0: Florence, however, had another idea. She chose to attend Mount Holyoke College, which meant she would live hours away from her home in South Hadley, Massachusetts. Her father was not happy with her college choice, but he allowed Florence to begin a new and independent life.
1: Meanwhile, the American health system that she would later help to reform was being hit hard by the Great Depression. Here's a report by Jeanette Walls.
5: You know, the Great Depression
2: was so interesting because America had been on such a high for so long, and just, you know, the jazz age and everything was great, and everybody was having a lot of fun, and all of a sudden, it came crashing down, and I think that folks just sort of thought, is this the end of the
4: American dream? Now, one might have said, looking around the United States in the 1930s, at the worst moment, there were 13 million people unemployed. You had people in soup kitchens, you had people unemployed, people were losing their homes across the country. The whole nation came to a standstill,
0: and everybody looking at America thought, was it all a mockery? Was it all just an experiment that obviously didn't work? And what will America be now? Will they just be a marginal nation? Will they ever recover from this?
1: patients and donor organizations could no longer afford to make donations to voluntary hospitals and those hospitals struggled to stay afloat many people felt hopeless like they were living in a boulevard of broken dreams of
5: sorrow, the boulevard of broken dreams, and gigaret- can take a kiss without regret, so they forget their broken dream.
4: Approximately 20,000 beds and 418 hospitals were withdrawn from use during that time, and private institutions were forced to take on some of the burden to care for sick patients. This difficult period led to a social consciousness that called for action to help improve the care for people with tuberculosis and those families with terminal illness. In an article that appeared in Hospitals and Magazines for the Hospitals in 1936, it stated that the system of care for terminally ill was inadequate or non-existent. Abrams, in his book, Spitting is Dangerous, writes that doctors did not want to be surrounded by terminally ill patients because it showed the limitations of their skills and of the medical world. If a patient
1: was deemed incurable at any point during the treatment process, they were immediately discharged. In fact, patients that fell under this classification were often refused admission to the hospital entirely because of the incurable policy.
3: The incurable policy was actually similar to the current practice of triage. During disasters or large-scale emergencies, responders designate color tags for patients based upon priority of their immediate care and transport. Patients who are expected to die are given black tags, matching those of patients who have already died and are only treated and transported after all other patients have received care, including those with non-life-threatening conditions. The mantra behind this system is provision of the greatest good for the greatest number of people, which often entails giving priority to some patients while others are neglected.
1: Some historians suggest that the refusal to admit terminally ill patients to the hospital in those times was motivated by self-serving motives. They believed that the incurable policy existed as an assurance of low mortality rates during a time when hospitals had reputations to build. If hospitals avoided admission of those patients expected to die, they could boast of higher cure rates than their competitors. And patients who could afford to pay would be more likely to choose their hospital for care. More paying patients, of course, Meant better business we're in for, money. for the hospital. We're in for money.
2: Yes, we've got a lot of what it takes to get along we're in, money. And the
1: in those times, terminal ill patients without money or family were sent to almhouses as a last
4: resort. Almhouses were public charity centers created to house the chronically ill. While almhouses were intended as refuges for those close to death, they were typically primitive, unpleasant, and were unable to provide real treatment or pain relief. Dependence on almhouses was intended more to keep the dying off the streets than to help them obtain a comfortable death, and were reserved for patients who were very poor, homeless, or without family to care for them. Tuberculosis
1: patients who were terminal ill were sent to sanatoriums. Here's a piece from the Oregon experience.
4: is short for tuberculosis, also called consumption, wasting disease, white plague. Everyone feared it. Scientists are studying the life and habits of the germ. And nobody had a cure. Parents wouldn't let their kids use water fountains. They wouldn't let them go to houses where tuberculosis existed. It was scary for families.
1: In the eyes of the medical community in the 1930s, thirties, let's stage tuberculosis was every bit a hopeless condition and the presence of tuberculosis patients in hospitals was seen as pointless, even outright dangerous. It was argued that patients with tuberculosis wasted space and resources that could be used for other treatable cases. More importantly, they were considered infectious and could spread the disease to other people in the hospital. The solution to the rejection of these patients led to the creation of sanatoriums. All week
5: today ...since I came here, it seems a month. I had always flattered myself that I was such a strong-willed person, and here I am, weak as a kitten and crying most of the time because I can't go home.
1: Bed rest, relaxation, being quiet, that was the principle method of treatment. I guess that meant you got to cure yourself. And they couldn't. Many couldn't.
4: Sanatoriums did keep the patients, many of them infectious, apart from the general population.
2: Many people considered a person who went to the TB
1: hospital as an outcast, almost like they used to consider lepers. My mother told me never to play with two boys that I liked very much because their father had TB, and he died of it. She didn't know I played with them anyway.
4: <laughs> Sanitariums did their utmost to take care of patients with a disease that everyone feared. And uh, we had some understanding of it, but really no good
1: treatment for it. Tom Walsh, in his book, Community Health, records a quote from William Speer, a doctor at the Oakdale Sanatorium near Iowa City, Iowa. William Spear described his experience with open air porches as follows. When I arrived, they were behind the times in terms of surgical treatment of tuberculosis. Patients were forced to stay in bed in open air cottages. You froze them in the wintertime and roasted them in the summertime. Patients didn't leave their beds unless it was absolutely necessary.
4: All of these sanatoriums maintained long waiting lists, though once admitted, the patients could hardly wait to leave.
5: Sometimes I go cold with dread, wondering if I'll ever get out of here. Do I want to know the doctor verdict or don't I? This is all my own fault and my punishment, and I'll just have to get myself out of it. If I could only have courage enough to carry on. Every day been just like the one before, and I haven't had much heart to write. Never get out of bed. The time went very slowly. We were all wanting her to come home. This morning I got two letters from my two little girls that I think lots of. They still think they can bring their troubles to Mother, and it makes me feel good to know they do. I wrote them each a long letter trying to encourage and praise them and help them iron out their troubles. Well, I hope they all come up to see me tomorrow.
4: Ruth's children were repeatedly tested for infection, but against the odds, none ever showed any signs of TB.
1: The location of sanatoriums tended to be away from towns and railroads and at higher elevations. The geographical isolation made sanatoriums difficult to reach for visitors. Even if visitors could reach the sanatorium, it was often discouraged. The avoidance of patients with cancer, the other prominent incurable disease at the time, paralleled that of tuberculosis. Unlike tuberculosis, cancer was not fended off and it was rarely beaten.
4: Survivors were usually those who had undergone extensive surgery and even then the disease could return. Due to its high fatality rates and the lack of promise in its treatments, medical authorities like the American Medical Association were reluctant to address the disease and for the most part, its address was seen as a waste of medical time. The majority of care for terminally ill cancer patients was left to religious associations and took place in almshouses or centers resembling hospitals. A few large centers like Calvary Hospital in New York City existed to provide charity comfort for cancer patients and were staffed by nuns rather than physicians. The 1930s
1: was a tough time for the terminally ill, with the exception of the government creating the National Cancer Institute in 1937. Little progress was made in caring for the terminal ill. Regardless of where the death occurred, in the first half of the 20th century, the dying process was not considered as part of medicine. It lacked the sense of personhood. This podcast is written and produced by me, Alabama. our historians are Bob Newton, Danielle Schumacher, and Brian McInerney. This is the first of many episodes to talk about Florence World and the hospice movement in the United States. This podcast is recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studios in Joliet, Illinois, and our studio engineer is Brian Mackender.